Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, literally Heather. Good morning. Happy Halloween, you fabulous friends of mine. I hope your Monday was uneventful yet productive. I am happy to report that you still have an opportunity to snag some goodies from Palmetto State Armory for their frightfully amazing Halloween sale. The links are in the show description. A couple things to note. The M110s will likely be back in stock on Thursday or Friday, and the MK12 will be back in stock next week. Make sure you are paying attention to my Twitter timeline so you do not miss out on those drops. Okay, late yesterday afternoon, a story about a man named Diego Barajas Medina, who was found dead in the women's bathroom of Glenwood Caverns Adventure Park, went viral. It went viral three days after it happened. When his body was found... From what appears to be a suicide, the words, I am not a killer, are scrawled on the wall next to him. Medina apparently entered the park while it was closed, armed with a rifle, a semi-automatic handgun, and explosives, was wearing body armor and tactical clothing, quote, similar to what police SWAT team members might wear. Or, you know, a citizen. Who wants to protect their body from being shot? A message saying, quote, I'm not a killer. I just want to get into the caves was written on a wall of the bathroom where Medina's body was found laying on the floor. Nearby was a handgun and explosive devices. Some of them were real and some of them were fake. Rifle was on a counter nearby, along with a duty belt holding several ammo mags. Valario could not say for certain that Medina wrote the message. There were no prior indications, either at home or school, suggesting that he was planning an attack. But the sheriff noted that investigators have not conducted any in-depth interviews yet. The FBI will help review Medina's phone records and social media postings as part of the investigation, he said. Given the preparation, given the amount of weapons and ordnance he had, it almost seemed very highly likely he intended to use those against the community. He chose not to, Valario said. Multiple improvised explosive devices were found in the vehicle used by Medina. Authorities searched the rest of the park for other explosives but suggested no others were found. The park likely would have been crowded on a fall weekend during hunting season when people go to the mountains to see the changing autumn colors. Given the park's isolated location, which visitors have to take a gondola to normally they normally have to take a gondola to the location. It would have been difficult to get any wounded to a hospital. Medina was from the nearby town of Carbondale, where he lived with his mother and brother. 
In a list of high school graduates published in a local newspaper in 2021, Medina said he planned to work for a year after graduation before attending Colorado Mountain College, which is a community college with several locations in western Colorado. A search of his room by law enforcement found nothing to indicate explosives or bomb making. He had no known criminal history or prior encounters with police. The weapons found on Medina were ghost guns, which do not have serial numbers and therefore cannot be traced. His clothing had patches and emblems that gave the appearance of Medina being associated with law enforcement. Some of the suspected explosive turned out to be fakes, including several that looked like handguns, but were others were real, the sheriff said. However, there was no evidence to suggest that explosive devices had been placed elsewhere inside the park. Investigators believe Medina drove up to the park on a service road. The park, which is surrounded by state-owned public land, is on a mountain above the Colorado River in western Colorado. Its attractions include cave tours, an alpine coaster, a pendulum swing ride perched on the edge of a cliff. Cliff. <laughs> cliff. That sends riders over a river canyon. No employees or visitors were on scene when Medina entered the park, according to a statement issued Monday by Glenwood Caverns, and his body was found outside of restricted areas where rides are located. Y'all, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I try extremely hard, especially on here, not to bring this stuff or or these opinions here. But this entire situation is so bizarre, a little too bizarre. It carries implications that, number one, he may not have been acting alone, and two, that he didn't want to carry out or go through with whatever his end, I mean, obviously, based off of the arsenal that he took with him, what his end of the deal was. And I often wonder to what links our own government would go to to ensure they had a completely docile and compliant citizenry. Would they use the same psychological manipulation on their own citizens that they use on other countries' citizens to garner compliance? I tend to attribute more incompetence than malice to the government. And I'm now wondering, is that naive and wrong? COVID was an enlightening exercise on balance of power. No one saw and felt the increase in power quite like the suburban white woman traveling through the target with her mask and instructing and tattling on others who didn't comply. That same woman is now holding mom's demand action signs at every town rallies. We saw an ends justify the means acceleration to the point where the FBI deployed 12 informants slash undercover agents to help orchestrate and carry out a kidnapping attempt on the governor of Michigan. We saw that same FBI spy on a political opponent who benefits from a disarmed populace. 
Is it wrong to at least ask these questions and expect some answers in return? We'll find out if my podcast isn't here after today. (laughs) Okay, this next story I've been following fairly ardently because I think states should be able to protect themselves and their citizens if the federal government is failing to do so. A federal judge on Monday ordered the Biden administration to stop cutting razor wire fences along the southern border in Texas that is meant to stop illegal migrant crossings. Judge Aliyah Moses of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Texas ordered the Department of Homeland Security to stop disassembling, degrading, tampering miles of razor wire running along the Rio Grande near Eagle Pass. The temporary order is a result of a lawsuit brought by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, arguing that federal officials said they had the authority to destroy state property, to allow illegal aliens to enter and to be processed. Paxton asked the court for an immediate injunction last week, noting in his request to the court, that federal agents escalated matters trading bolt cutters for an industrial-strength telehandler forklift to dismantle Texas border fence. Federal agents used hydraulic-powered pallet forks to rip Texas's fence, concertina wire, fencing post clamps, and all out of the ground holding it suspended in the air in order to wave more than 300 migrants illegally into Texas. The motion for a temporary injunction reads, Um, Last week, DHS released a statement that said, Border agents have a responsibility under federal law to protect migrants from being injured regardless of their legal status. In an 11-page document filed in with the federal court in Del Rio, Moses, found that the state of Texas had met the required four-part test needed to be granted a temporary halt to the federal government's action, but the judge noted one exception. The court shall grant the temporary relief requested with one important exception for any medical emergency that most likely results in serious bodily injury or death to a person absent any boats or other life-saving apparatuses available to avoid such medical emergencies prior to reaching the concertina wire barrier. The temporary restraining order will remain in place until the parties have an opportunity to present evidence at a preliminary injunction hearing before the court, which is scheduled for next Tuesday. Between the administration's extreme resilience, I'm sorry, not next Tuesday, a week from Tuesday. Between the administration's extreme resilience in their efforts to keep the borders wide open and their secondary efforts to ensure that they can continue to coerce social media organizations into silencing dissent, I can't help but feel that this administration does not have this country's best interests in mind. Did you know that a massive Cat 5 hurricane just pummeled Acapulco, Mexico? I didn't either until yesterday. 
Estella Sandoval Diaz was huddled in her tiny concrete bathroom. Sure, these were the final moments of her life. Um, When Hurricane Otis ripped off her tin roof, with it went clothing, savings, furniture, photos, 33 years of the life that Sandoval built piece by piece on the forgotten fringes of Acapulco. Sandoval was among hundreds of thousands of people whose lives have been torn apart when the fastest intensifying hurricane on record in the eastern Pacific shredded the coastal city of one million, leaving at least 45 dead. The Cat 5 hurricane damaged nearly all of Alcapulco's homes, left bodies bobbing along the coastline, and much of the city foraging for food. While authorities were hard at work restoring order in Alcapulco's tourist center, cutting through trees in front of high-end and high-rise hotels, and restoring power. The city's poorest, like Sandoval, said they feel abandoned. She and hundreds of thousands of others lived two hours of terror last week, and now face years of work to repair their already precarious lives. The government doesn't even know we exist, Sandoval said. They've only ever taken care of the resort areas, the pretty places of Acapulco. They've always forgotten us. It's a sentiment that has long simmered in this city, but has grown as many accuse the government of leaving them to fend for themselves after Otis hit. President Andre Manuel López Obrador has deployed more than 10,000 troops to deal with the hurricane's aftermath, along with 1,000 government workers to determine needs. He said, quote, 10,000 packages of appliances and other necessities, refrigerators, stoves, mattresses, had been collected and were ready to distribute to families in need. Everyone will be supported. Count on us, he pledged last week. But very few of the dozens of people that the AP spoke to said they'd received aid from the government, nor were they expecting much. Sandoval and her family have spent decades living a stone's throw away from the beachside high-rises and luxury stores lining Alcapulco's, uh, I think this is chintziest, but... I have no clue what I typed. I literally, you guys, I was falling asleep at my desk writing this show. So who knows what the rest of the show entails. But um, this particular area of Acapulco is called the Diamond Zone. Living in a two-room concrete house with no potable water and unpaved roads, the glamour never reached their doorstep. Referred to by locals as the sunken neighborhood, Viverista has is always hit hardest by natural disasters. Their home was surrounded by ankle-deep, putrid water. Sandoval, her husband, and two neighbors were sleeping under a sheet of metal propped up against the house. She picked through scraps in her bedroom, taking note of what was ruined and planning how to ration water and gas for cooking. Mexico's government has tallied that at least 220,000 homes have been damaged and says 47 people remain missing. 
most residents expect the death toll to rise based on the slow government response and overall devastation, with one city business leader estimating it will exceed 100. Military, public, security, and forensics officials said that they are not permitted to provide details on the death toll or search for bodies. Meanwhile, thousands of panicked family members desperately hunted for missing loved ones. On Saturday, Lopez Obrador blasted critics of his hurricane response, saying journalists and the political opposition had exaggerated casualties. He said Mexico's security minister would provide an adequate update on the human toll without lying. A government official giving numbers reflective of devastation with a promise of honesty? I think I know how this episode ends. Um, The Supreme Court is set to hear oral arguments on Monday in a pair of cases asking if two innocent property owners have due process rights to a prompt hearing after police seize their vehicles. Civil forfeiture laws, which are in place in all 50 states and Washington, D.C., allow law enforcement to seize property, such as a vehicle, if it is used in connection to a crime, even if the property is owned by an innocent party. The case slated for Monday morning arguments, Cully v. Marshall, consolidates two civil forfeiture proceedings from Alabama. Between 2000 and 2019, states and the federal government pocketed a total of 68 dollars billion through forfeiture, leading to police departments across the country raking in millions of dollars worth of property each year. My goodness, do I want to audit some people. (laughs) Parties who are ordered to forfeit their property contend the process for retrieving their property is overly tedious not only because they must prove their innocence, but because the process for obtaining a hearing can take months, sometimes even years. The oral arguments at the high court on Monday will instead involve similar dilemmas out of Alabama. Property owner Halima Colley had her vehicle seized for alleged drug crimes committed by her son. The other property owner, Lena Sutton, had her vehicle similarly seized over alleged gun crimes, I'm sorry, drug crimes, committed by her roommate. Both vehicle owners were found to be innocent third parties, but neither received a timely judicial review, leaving them without transportation for months. Maybe while they're at it, they can get them to rule that property tax is unconstitutional. That'd be great. A man convicted of assaulting police during the January 6th Capitol riot was tackled to the ground by court officers Monday after he refused to surrender when a judge ordered him into custody over threats he made against federal agents. Vitaly Gostjankowski 
threw his hands up and lashed out as officers tried to place him in handcuffs after U.S. District Court Judge Paul Friedman ruled he would be jailed while waiting sentencing. Gosh-Jinkowski, what a name, man, managed to wrestle court officers to the ground, knocking over tables and chairs in the process, and wasn't subdued until more security rushed in and joined the scrum. He had to be held down by four U.S. Marshals and FBI staff. The defendant was found guilty of felony and misdemeanor charges in March for assaulting officers with an electroshock device. During the riot at the U.S. Capitol, according to the Washington, D.C. Attorney's Office, Gostjankowski was initially allowed to remain free while awaiting sentencing. But he was called into a hearing on Monday after prosecutors reported he sent numerous anti-Semitic texts to federal agents in his case and made posts on social media in which he threatened to release their personal information. How he got their phone numbers, I'm still confused about, if I'm being honest. One of the texts was sent to the same federal agent who first arrested him in 2001 after the Capitol riot. Previously, the defendant had used his social media to track and publicly harass members of law enforcement and the FBI's Washington field office. Prosecutors wrote in a court filing, this alone was concerning, but now he has sent intimidating direct messages to a specific law enforcement officer who previously testified in this case. The end of today's hearing was a confusing and emotional one for Mr. Goschenkowski, said his attorney, and not at all in line with the character he has demonstrated through his many months on release. Peed. P-E-E-D is his attorney's last name. Peed. Oh, man. Could you imagine having that name going through school? Okay, a couple of things here. Number one, he was wrong for bringing the, I guess, electroshock device. I'm, I'm assuming a taser. Unless he thought he was defending himself or didn't know that they were police officers. I have not read the testimony, but gosh, man, you really want to cheer for the antagonist when it's against the overbearing government. Um, I'd like to, number two... I'd like to see the screenshots from the conversations he had when he was harassing the agents. It says text in the article. Um, was he somehow able to get the FBI agent's phone numbers? Was he doing this through social media, private messaging? I, I would be curious what they're qualifying as threats. Because I've seen what they call domestic extremism. So... I am I'm curious to see what those interactions actually look like. Um, the U.S. has seen a big increase in Chinese immigrants arriving using a relatively new and perilous route through Panama's Darien Gap jungle, thanks in part to a social media post and videos providing step-by-step -step instructions. Chinese people were the 
fourth highest nationality after Venezuelans, Ecuadorians, and Haitians. Fourth highest nationality crossing the Darien Gap during the first nine months of this year, according to Panamanian immigration authorities. Chinese migrants using this route to fly to Ecuador and then make their way north to the U.S.-Mexico border? Why would anyone come to this country legally anymore? I, I, I need someone to, like, write and explain to me why you would go through the process of legally coming to the United States when you get more benefit by not doing so. I'm just, I'm curious to hear your all's thoughts on that. Um, the monthly number of Chinese migrants crossing the Darien has been rising gradually. From 1913 in January to 2,588 in September. For the first nine months of this year, Panamanian immigration authorities registered 15,000 567 Chinese citizens crossing the Darien. By comparison, 2,005 Chinese people trekked through the jungle in 2002, and only 376 from 2010 all the way to 2021. At the U.S.-Mexico border, the Border Patrol made 22,000 187 arrests of Chinese people for crossing the border illegally from Mexico from January through September, nearly 13 times the same period in 2022. Arrests peaked at 4,010 in September, up 70% from August. The vast majority were single adults. The increase comes as more people are leaving China. The United Nations has projected China will lose 310,000 people through emigration this year, compared with 120,000 in 2012. The route is viable for Chinese immigrants because they can fly into Ecuador without a visa. From Quito, they join Latin Americans to travel through the once impenetrable Darien and across several Central American countries before reaching the U.S. border. The journey is well known enough. It has its own name in Chinese, Walk the Line or Xuxian. Uh, that might actually be Jushian. Um, short video platforms and messaging apps have popularized the route. They provide on-the-ground video clips and step-by-step -step guides from China to the United States, including tips on what to pack, where to find guides, how to survive the jungle, which hotels to stay at, how much to bribe police in different countries, and what to do when encountering U.S. immigration officers. Translation apps allow migrants to navigate through Central America on their own, even if they don't speak English or Spanish. Those who cannot obtain a visa but travel to the U.S. by crossing the border illegally to seek asylum are usually united with relatives 
and friends in major cities such as Los Angeles, New York, where they will find hard work and establish a foothold. Many enter the United States in the San Diego area in September of night. I'm sorry, in September, 98% of U.S. border arrest of Chinese people occurred in that specific area. They are also part of a broader presence of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. Asians, South Americans, and Africans, who made September the second highest month of illegal crossings and the U.S. government's 2023 budget year, the second highest on record. Some migrants who enter the U.S. at San Diego wait for agents to pick them up in an area between two border walls, or in remote mountains east of the city covered with shrubs and large boulders. They wait there to turn themselves in to U.S. authorities to make asylum claims. U.S. Border Patrol agents sometimes take migrants who have been processed to a transit station in San Diego, where they can charge phones, snack, browse piles of free clothing, get travel advice daily. We become an unserious country about the safety and security of our kids. That is your Tuesday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. You take care and have a wonderful day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.